Tonight, we've got an awesome guest, a good friend of mine from Michigan, Jason Sankoviak from the Traditional Bow Hunting and Wilderness Podcast. Hey, Jason, how you doing tonight? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Uh, we're doing awesome. Uh, how about yourself, Robert? Good, man. Doing good. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on tonight, Jason. We appreciate you taking the time. Oh, looking forward to it. Your podcast has been incredible. I uh, was kind of going through withdrawals there for a little bit while you guys were out there chasing elk around and not really recording anything. And, uh, you know, I missed a, you know, so you weren't there for a week or so. I was kind of going through withdrawals. So I'm glad you guys are back at it. And I, I can't, I can't wait for every episode to come out. Hey, yeah, we appreciate it. Next year, hopefully we can get our ducks in a row or even this deer season, we will have our ducks in a row and, and keep them coming weekly. And even while we're hunting, we kind of got that figured out. Uh, so it's just, uh, you know, uh, all an experience, I suppose. Uh, you, you've been uh, quite successful at putting an episode av- out every single week for, is it about, what, three years, four years? Yeah, I think, yeah, four, four, almost five years, maybe. I think I started it in August of 2000, and, was it 12 or 13? I don't even remember. Somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, but I've missed a few as well, so don't get too carried away. And if you're gonna, if you're gonna miss an episode for something, hunting is definitely the best reason to do it. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. So, Jason, it was instrumental in getting me started in uh, doing the podcast. He had me on his podcast uh was la- sometime last year um after i'd uh harvested that blacktail buck and i came on i think it was episode 199 and we talked about my blacktail hunting and it, that was the start of jason uh giving me the push that i needed to uh, start the podcast and so uh, i'd like to publicly thank you because it's been uh, a ton of fun doing this and it's opened up a lot of doors as far as friendships with people so uh you know thank you very much no you're welcome and and as i said before you're doing it for the right reasons you know you're out there you guys are trying as hard as you can to teach other people bring information to them um it's uh you know know, it's the right reasons it's honest it's legit and uh it's it's what people want to hear. Like I said, I mean, you, you know as well as I do, we, we listen to a lot of podcasts. Yours is one that I just cannot, uh, I, I can't pass up. It doesn't, I'm, I'm not even an elk hunter. And I feel like I know more about elk hunting now than I ever did before, just because I can't stop listening to what it is you guys are talking about. Wow, uh, I'm blushing. Uh, we appreciate it. Um, yeah, yeah, and plus... Uh, you know, I'm kind of a social butterfly, as you guys may can tell. And so after I start, I started listening to Jason's podcast, and I found his phone number. And I'm just that kind of guy. Like if I read a book or uh, if I'm drawn to somebody, I find a way to, to kind of like a stalker, and I just get a hold of them. And and you know, Jason uh, took my phone calls and answered so many questions uh, that I had for him about um, tree stand hunting and uh, whitetail hunting that I, I was looking to apply his techniques and tactics to the blacktail woods. And so tonight, I really want to uh, pick Jason's brain and to share with our audience you know, some of your knowledge. And if, if you guys are listening tonight and you haven't listened to the traditional bow hunting wilderness podcast by Jason, you guys should definitely check it out. So why don't you go ahead and maybe give us a, a start on how you, you know, how you got into podcasting, why you started your podcast, and then we'll move into the whitetail stuff. Well, the podcast was basically the same exact thing as you. 
Um, you know, you want to educate people, you want to get information to them, and uh, you want to teach them how to do things the right way. I mean, even you, we, I remember being in elk camp, or not elk camp, but uh, in Kansas in a whitetail camp last year and talking to you even and you saying, you know, I, I don't know how to do this. I don't know what way to go. I don't know if it's going to be beneficial. I don't know if they'll listen to me, but I know I have a lot of information and I can get in contact with the people that can bring stuff to help people and make them better. And plus the same exact reason I got into it. I figured I know a little bit about traditional bow hunting. I've been doing it for a long time and I know a lot about whitetails and and different ways to go about that. I thought, you know what? I got this three hour drive each way, six hours I'm spending in a car every week uh, for my job to drive from Northern Michigan down, down South to Southern Michigan. And uh, so I do that, you know, once a week and it's like, you know what? I'm bored during that drive. I'll bet I can actually do a podcast uh, in my car, uh, kind of like it, it was a guy for the survival podcast, uh, did, uh, Jack Spirico. Well, he did it when he started, he was doing it on his commute in his car. And I thought, you know what? I can do the same thing. So that's when I, I picked up a recorder and I started doing it and thought, you know what? This could be a lot of fun. And, and it is. And, you know, like you, as you guys are experiencing the amount of feedback you get and the people that tell you how much you helped them and, um, the people that are telling you, you know, how they would have never got their first year if it wasn't for you. And thank you so much. You helped them. And, you know, it's it just, uh, it makes it all worthwhile and it makes you keep going and you just can't, you can't get enough of doing that and you just love it. And next thing you know, it's something you're doing all the time. Yeah. I'm definitely doing it selfishly to, to learn as much as I can myself and, uh, to better myself as a traditional bow hunter by, uh, you know, getting guys like you on the horn and, and picking your brain and whatnot. So how, how long have you been uh, hunting with a uh, traditional bow? Uh, it's close to 25 years. I think uh, I killed my first year ever in 1994. Yeah, 1994, first year out of high school. And uh, I graduated in 93, killed a deer in 94 with a compound. And uh, I, it, it, I was like into bow hunting for uh, literally like uh, three weeks before that. Uh, you know, I bought my first bow, killed a deer, and I thought it was too easy. So then I immediately, uh, I bought another compound. It was faster and meaner and it blew up on me and then I was fed up. And so I bought a recurve. Uh, I bought, so I started with a recurve in December of 94 and, uh, with a Martin Mamba recurve, but I did not kill my first animal. I missed 12 animals shot over the back of 12 deer from tree stands between 94, uh, and, uh, 19 or, uh, then 1997 was when I killed my first deer. So it was three years before I killed a deer with that, uh, with a traditional bow, but started basically. So first kill was in 90, uh, 97, but started with it in, uh, January 94. And you're hunting predominantly white-tailed deer. That's, that's the name of the game out there, right? Uh, yeah, at home. Yeah. I mean, I've hunted a lot of other animals in different places, but, uh, whitetails are definitely, uh, it's my, my favorite thing to hunt whitetails. Awesome. Uh, you got any questions, Robert? Yeah. Um, so you're hunting public land back there. How, how does it work back there? Yeah. Well, where I live at Northern Michigan here, uh, we're blessed with the fact that we got, I mean, it, I don't know how many, it's, I don't even have a clue how many acres, but basically, um, where I'm at, I mean, I can head, hundreds of miles i I can probably go 40 50 miles in any direction and it's basically state land with little bits of private scattered here and there but i mean it's just miles and miles and miles of uh public land the downside is it's all uh big woods big timber there's no agriculture here there's no nothing anything like that a few little scattered parts but nothing with with access to it it's all just big woods up here but 
there's a lot of it. So, um, yeah, 90% of what I do is on public land here. And now I also, for the last few years, I've been traveling to other states, hitting public land out there. Used to hunt some private land in Missouri and a little bit of private land in Illinois. Switched to Illinois stuff to uh, public last few times I was down there. And then, you know, in other states as well, too. But now pretty much, uh, you know, I hunt mainly public. It's For the cost, it was costing me to go on one uh, least kind of a hunt where I just stayed there for a week, you know, in Missouri. Yeah. For the cost, it was costing me to do that. I can hunt five different states out of my wall tent, you know. Yeah. And so um, is that like the Upper Peninsula and all that stuff I hear about growing up? Like, uh, I'm actually not. I'm an hour south of the UP. I'm in kind of right in the middle of the mitten is where I am. Okay. Um, and uh, so it's a, it's a great area, but it's very, when you get up across the bridge, it's a lot more pine, a lot more dense, a lot more bear country kind of stuff where here it's a lot more. Uh, oaks and uh, swamps and, you know, hardwood flats and conifer stands and that kind of stuff. Sounds awesome. And, and it's pancake flat, right? Uh, well, where I'm at and where I do most of my hunting, yes. Now, uh, we're kind of surrounded by areas that are got some rollers in them and stuff like that. Elevation changes of maybe 50 to 80 or to 100 feet here and there. But um, for the most part, 90% of the hunting I do is bone flat. I mean, you if you find 10 foot of elevation change, you're, you're shot. Wow. Sounds, right. sounds a lot like where I hunt blacktails besides the flat part. I hunt kind of, you know, the big woods too, I guess, you know, they haven't logged there in years, no agriculture. So it's pretty low deer densities. Again, it's not flat, but, uh, it sounds pretty similar. Is, is it similar up there with the deer densities? Yeah, I don't know what the deer, what it is now, but I do remember a time, and it could have been 15, 18 years ago that I remember hearing this, but I remember the DNR putting something out that in Ross Common County, which is where I live at, that general area, there was a 25 to 1 buck to doe ratio with that 25 does per buck. So yeah. it's a pretty low deer density, pretty, not a lot, it's nothing like, I mean, I can go down state and hunt on a buddy's place down there on his little 10 acres, which... I, I, I've never killed a deer down there. I don't go down and hunt too much down there, but um, he can be down there and he can see 25 or 30 deer a night. I can go a whole season and not see more than 25 deer, you know? Yeah, sounds very similar. And so you do a lot of tree stand hunting, it sounds like. But before we get into that, like, yeah. are the seasons, what's your archery seasons there? Are you hunting with rifle hunters or how does that work back there? I know nothing about the back east whitetail stuff. So, and I think a lot of guys maybe that listen to this or a lot of Western guys. So maybe you could kind of run down how your seasons work back there. Well, here, our, our bow season opens up, it opens up October 1st, which I'm excited for a couple of days away, oh, but yeah. uh, it opens on October 1st. Yep. And then it runs through technically the season runs till November 14th. Um, and then November 15th through November 30th is their, our gun season. And then bow season opens December 1st through January 1st. So now, but we can use our bows, during the gun season, we just have to follow gun season rules, which means here during gun season, you're not, not allowed to shoot a doe unless you have an antlerless permit. So if I bow hunt during gun season, I have to be buck only unless I have an antlerless permit. I have to wear orange. You know, I got to follow the rules. But technically, yeah. I can bow hunt from October 1st all the way through to January 1st. Oh, that's awesome. Now, the rut time, is it the same as here? Is that beginning of November the best time for you or is it? after the rifle season well before usually here because we have eight hundred thousand rifle hunters that will hit the woods for two Oof. weeks straight oh, and, eight, uh, oh yeah eight, eight hundred thousand yeah, eight. 
Yep. And I mean, if you were to fly during, if you, on November 15th, if you flew over the state of Michigan, you would think it was just a big pumpkin patch, <laughs> you know, orange everywhere. Wow. Wow. Literally the orange army, huh? Literally. It's, I mean, it's, uh, it's pretty bad. The pressure is unreal. And then what else is a kicker is our rut. I mean, the breeding time is usually November 15th through November 30th is when they're breeding here. Uh, we're a little more North. So that's usually when it's happening. And, uh, so that means that your best time to hunt them, you know, for, for whitetail action for bucks uh, is going to be usually right around Halloween on October 31st up until uh, November 14th is usually the best time for cruisers and for uh, pre-rut phases and the chasing phases. But the downside is during that time, that's when all the gun hunters are in the woods putting out bait piles uh. and uh, setting stand sites up and trampling around. It's, it's an adventure. It's a very high-pressured area. It's, it's, uh, it's definitely something... Uh, you know, you you can if you don't know what you're doing, you can run her into people a whole lot. But and if so, you know if you know what you're doing, you can get back away from people. Or is the there are too many roads? Yeah, I, or there's a lot of roads. It's broken up. There's a few places that I could walk. There's a few places that would be. I mean, there's yeah, there's a good handful of places around here that I could get three three miles in, in from any road if I wanted to. Some okay. maybe five or six, but they're pretty nasty. Yeah. Um, but the majority, I would say probably 75% of the place is broken up by a road every mile. So you can't get more than a half a mile away from somebody, you know? Yeah. And so what's I, the... I do two tactics. I, I either go in real far or I hunt literally 30 yards off of a road. And I'm not going to lie, half of my deer that I've killed, I've killed literally 30. I mean, where cars are driving by, look, going, look at that idiot up there in the tree. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> You know, that's funny because there's been times I have a few places where I hunt where I'm like, man, I should just put a tree stand right here on the road. I mean, I've been parked before, like I killed my buck waiting to pick up a buddy and have deer cross there, like 200 yards in front of my truck. I'm like, man, I, one of these days I should try it. It's funny you said that, but I was thinking people just see me driving by. <laughs> right. They do. And you feel like a fool up there, but you know. A, a buck is going to find a sanctuary for a buck is defined by basically two things, cover and the fact that he never smells a person there. That's what makes it a sanctuary. And while one of the places that never seems to have hunters in it is the place that's right off the road. Cause they don't want to hunt there. They don't, they feel too, they don't feel like there would ever be a deer. There's too close to the road. Well, because of that lack of people. And if the right cover is there, like I said, that's, that's a deer sanctuary. I watch people, literally walk way i mean back when i used to hunt downstate down in the, the busy urban areas down there i would I, I mean i i killed deer literally where people could i could hear them talking about me from a parking lot as they're staring at me in a tree and they're walking right through this little cut through this brush and i know these deer are going to use that brush and sure enough i kill them while there's a guy in the parking lot getting his stand ready <laughs> that's awesome that's awesome uh, so how many deer tags do you get in Michigan and how, uh, hunting out of state, how do you decide when, you know, that pre ruts happening around the same time in all these states, how do you divide up your time to when to leave Michigan and go hunt Ohio or Kansas or wherever you're headed? You know, how does that work for you and your schedule? Well, here in Michigan, we get two tags, a combo license, which gives you an option during both season to kill either two does or you can kill one buck and one doe, or you can kill two bucks, but one buck has got to be four or bigger on one side. So a four by four by your Western count, or a four by three, but it's got to be four, four one-inch points on one side um, on one of those tags, the restricted tag. So 
Um, and then we can also get antler list tags. So like usually, like this year I have four tags. I have my two combo regular licenses, and then I got a uh, doe permit for my property, and I got a doe permit for a unit about an hour away from me. So I technically in Michigan can kill four deer. Uh, and again, that season runs through January 1st. Uh, I go to, uh, usually I'm in Missouri that first week in November. Uh, I don't usually get to hunt a rut here in Michigan very often, which is probably why I haven't killed a decent buck in Michigan in the last, you know, probably six years is because I'm never here during that time. I really, in Michigan, I get to hunt about two weeks in October and I get to hunt maybe two weeks in December in Michigan. The rest of the hunting, I'm somewhere else. (laughs) And you're doing that and you're doing that. You're doing that because there's better hunting in other states? It, well, sort of, yes. Um, and, and during the rut allows me, there's a couple of reasons I choose to go during the rut. One is because I'm limited on my time to scout in these other states. And during the rut is when most deer are active and moving, which means I can hunt funnels and pinch points and travel corridors and things that are going to bring me the deer. I'm not worried about antler size. I'm looking for deer. For me, it's I, I'm trying to fill a freezer full of eight to 10 deer a year, because then if, if I can get eight, uh, then we basically don't have to spend more than a hundred dollars a year on actual store-bought meat. If I get 10, then we can live off all of our wild meat and I can help supply my family with a little bit too. So that's my goal. If for me, it's all about the meat. Um, and by hunting these other States during what what's the rut time and when people are going for the antlers i'm going because of the fact that i don't have to learn uh exact bedding spots and food sources and they're only traveling a little bit in the evening and in the morning i can be in a place where i can pick a good travel corridor or a pinch point and and these deer are traveling through at all hours of the day making my odds of coming home with a freezer full of meat a lot better so hearing that i mean i know it's not about the numbers but i mean you've probably Taken over a hundred deer with traditional equipment. I mean, is that accurate or? Yeah, I got to be right in that general area somewhere. Hundred or a little, maybe maybe ten less, maybe ten more somewhere right in that ballpark. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. It's impressive for us. We get yep. one a year, you know, for sure. Yeah, it's a whole different ball game. But keep in mind, one a year elk is equivalent to you. you yeah, how much meat yeah. do you get out of an elk? I'm guessing three hundred pounds. Yeah, a a good sized elk. Yeah, I get a little more than that if on a big one yeah yeah where we're yeah. getting we're getting 55 pounds out of a deer you know 55 60 pounds of meat out of a deer so i mean your one elk is four of my deer yeah right at least yeah yeah that's awesome so at what point did you you know go from being a, a casual tree stand hunter to implementing the mobile tree stand hunting that i really want to talk about tonight uh, it was way back in the beginning. It, I mean, in the beginning, uh, I never had like a lone wolf or anything light like that. There was, uh, I started out using whatever cheap stands I could buy. And then what I found is that I would hang a stand and I plan on leaving it for the year. And again, I was on public land down in a, you know, not far from the Metro Detroit area in the suburbs. So, I mean, heavily hunted areas down there. And, uh, what would happen is I'd hang a stand up and I'd come back three days later. And for some reason that stand just wasn't there no more. And, uh, that got to be pretty annoying. And then the other thing was that I would hang a stand and then the wind would be coming the wrong way. And I got to get it, climb up there and pull the stand down and move the stand to another tree. And then you, you end up having a garage. There was one time, I think I had like 15 different stands that were all cheap stands, uh, creaking, making noise. They weren't all that good, but they would, you know, and I'd put them out every year and I'd have to go back and get them at the end of the season. And it was limiting me to the places that I could hunt. 
Well, and then I found a Chippewa, uh, wet, or actually it's called the Aerospace Stand at the time. It was made by Aerospace, uh, but it was like a Chippewa wedge lock, but it was, it was lighter weight. And uh, it had this like a uh, ball system with a cable on it. So you could hang these brackets all over a bunch of trees and just hook one stand on it. Well, I bought that. And I think I bought, I think I bought and made, we made them out of like some uh, pink, like foam dog balls or something, but we made our own for a while. But I think at one time I had about 50 or 60 of these brackets and I would hang them all season in a whole bunch of different uh, public land places. And then I just carry that stand and go to anywhere I had one of these brackets. And at the time we could still use, uh, you know, screw entry steps and things like that. Uh, so I had these things set up already. And so I was doing it like that. That was kind of how it got started. Then they stopped letting you use screw in steps and I started strap on steps and started playing with things. The next thing, you know, it just evolved into, you know, going, you know, running one stand and, uh, you know, lone wolf stands. I've been using them for probably, I don't know, 10, 12, 13, 14 years, something like that. And tell our listeners what you what you mean by the lone wolf setup, you know, explain, explain your setup. Uh, it's evolved over time to different things, but, uh, what I like, what I'm running right now, I run, uh, one of the lone wolf, uh, the alpha, the assault stand, the little one, not, they got two, they got an alpha is the big hang on and the assault is the smaller hang on. I've been running, uh, I like both of them a lot. I actually think the, the bigger one's more comfortable, but it's, it's a few pounds heavier and more bulkier. So I've been running the alpha, the, or the assault one, the lone wolf assault little stand. And I run three other lone wolf sticks. I've tried a bunch of different sticks and uh, as far as lightweight and uh, speed, it's pretty hard to beat the lone wolf ones. They they are really good. I'm sure we'll get into, you know, I can go into some of the reasons why I, I choose these stands. But I run that uh, that set of sticks and I run that set of stands. And I run a, uh, you know, a full body harness with a, uh, you know, with a good quality lineman belt so I can move real quick. And the whole system is pretty flawless. And so you're going up, you're, you're walking into the woods with this setup and you go up a tree and you hunt and when you're done you and your stand come out correct i don't leave a stand. the only time i'll ever leave a stand up is if uh the spot's really good and i'm hunting like in an evening and it's really good and i have the if i plan on coming back in the morning i'll leave that stand there and then come back to it in the morning but if i'm uh it's i other than that scenario which happens probably maybe five six times a year where i hunt a spot at night and i'm coming back in the morning but other than those kind of scenarios I, I never sit in the same spot twice, um, at least not more, like, you know, they're at least a month apart if I'm going to come back to a stand. But my feeling is once you walk into a stand, whether you're scouting it or you're hunting it, but once you put a footprint in that spot, you ruined it. So if I'm going to walk in and hunt it, I'm going to hunt it, and then I'm going to pull everything out with me and not go back to it for a month. That way you're having a fresh sit every single time. Exactly. And that's the, you know, there's a confidence aspect to that. It's really important. Um, if I walk into a spot and I hunt it, it's not, it, it, we all know that your first time in is your best time. Well, if I go in and it's the first time I'm in and it's a mediocre spot or, you know, I'm not having, I didn't see what I want or end up harvesting what I want or anything like that. Um, the odds of it being better the next day are not very good. So I want that confidence of a fresh new spot every time, every <coughs> <clears throat> Every time I climb into a tree, I expect a 200-inch green crockett whitetail to walk within five yards. Doesn't happen very often, but that's my expectation. Every time, every time I sit in the stand, you know, and it's always a new one that gives me that that thought that it could happen. Now, do, do those do those bucks up there? I'm probably speaking mostly on the Michigan, like the Big Woods bucks. Do those bucks? Um, 
do they travel a lot? You know, I'm kind of hunting bucks that'll cruise, you know, and I've, I've tracked them for miles, you know, like, so my pre set up stands, I figure, you know, I'm sitting there, one might not come by for five days, you know, and if I'm moving around and I got my little funnel where I know a buck will eventually cruise through, and it's not going to hurt me sitting there for five days because there's no deer around, you know, I'm just waiting for one to come by. Do you know what I'm saying? Yep. And, and you're right. And with cruisers, and that's the benefit of me hunting out of state during a lot of that time, you are correct that, uh, um, if a, if a deer has not been there, so if you walk in and you sent an area up, but that deer that you're looking for hasn't been through there yet, it doesn't matter. You can come back. Yeah. Um, but you, because the first you, what you want is you want the first time he's going to be there to be when you're in that stand or the first time he's going to know you were there is when you want to put an arrow through him. Yeah. You know, you don't want him to come in at night after you've been there during the day and you leave and he walks through there at night and smells you there. Your hunt's over. Yeah. Yeah. You know, here See, where we got real heavy pressure. Yeah. yeah and, and I'm, I'm hunting resident deer that are, they live and die in a small space. So I feel like if I go in there and whatever I do, when I leave, he's going to know about it that night. He's going to discover, uh, my scent for sure. Yep. yep. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's definitely a difference to where this would probably work better. So yeah, what's your, what, here in Michigan, what, they, uh, go ahead. What's your take on what Robert's saying? Um, e- even though he is sitting in this funnel for five days, do you feel with what you know about deer hunting and, and have hunted so many places, would you still be likely to hunt that same funnel, but move up a hundred yards, move over? Mo- would you still be moving around? Moving around, in my opinion, is a good thing. Um, because now with whitetails in, in a specifically heavily pressured whitetails, I mean, I hunt Kansas, I hunt Missouri and I hunt Ohio, Ohio, pretty heavily pressured, Missouri kind of pressured, Kansas, very little pressure. And in Missouri and Kansas, I mean, I, I I've killed, I've killed six month old button bucks in Michigan that have been much smarter than, than, you know, four and a half year old deer in, you know, in Missouri or Kansas, you know, yeah. I mean, like I said, they, you can get away with a lot more out there, but, uh, I mean, not that they're easy. It's just the terrain, the topography and the lack of pressure is just a whole different ballgame. But here, um, like even you were saying about deer moving, eventually he's going to come through that funnel. My opinion here, where I'm at Michigan, a deer cannot get to be uh, three and a half, four and a half, five and a half years old by making those kind of mistakes. And actually somebody, I think John Eberhardt was one that was saying it, uh, a big portion, and I don't remember the numbers, so I'm not going to throw them out there, but it was something like 80 or nine, like eight or nine out of 10, uh, P and Y animals that he's killed in Michigan has had arrows or broadhead wounds or gunshot wounds on them from hunters in the past. Um, so these deer don't get this big by being stupid. And I honestly believe in my opinion that during, even during the rut here, that these bigger bucks, they're not cruising far. And when they do, they're only doing it at night. I mean, think about that during that time of year, we got what, eight, nine hours of daylight. So you got all the rest of the time is dark. They'll do all of their traveling during that nighttime. Yeah. Sounds like a rough life out there. It, it, it can be tough. I mean, it's definitely nothing like you guys got with blacktails. You guys, I mean, after talking with James about some of his experiences last year, I just showed, I almost wanted to buy him a plane ticket and tell him get the heck out of there, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, like, like I said, I'm not like I'm spooking a lot of deer. I've, I've set, I mean, I usually mix it up. I move around just for a change of scenery, but I think there are three years in a row I killed 
a buck on the seventh seventh day straight I've been hunting, and those that was the first buck I saw. You know what I mean? So yep, I'm just and there's waiting a lot for of that people one. that believe that. Mm-hmm. Yep, and there's a lot of great bow hunters that feel the same way. That feel that you know what you find a good funnel, you sit in it, and eventually he'll come through there. And that that may work for. I mean, it does. It's proven to work for a lot of people. There's no doubt about it. Um, for me, I just I I was my confidence is like I said. In order to sit and stand as much as I do in as many places as I am, I need that movement in order for me to feel like it's a fresh sit. I, I climb up that tree and I go. No animal in the world knows that I'm here. And the first time they're going to know I'm here, I'm, I have the option to kill them if I want to. And uh, when I'm done with that hunt, I come down and I go to a very new spot and do the same thing. And actually, as you were asking earlier, James, about moving a little bit, um, here in Michigan, where I have all this access to stuff, I got stands. Um, I, I probably have close to 150 different spots that I've either scouted or hunted or prepped um, that are ready to go that are covering, I mean, in a 60 mile radius around me. So for me, um, if I hunt one spot and I kill it that, you know, if I go up and I don't, you know, I kill the spot by my scent. Um, usually I'm going to be a minimum of five, six, 700 yards a mile. You know, I'm, I'm not, um, I don't just bounce a little bit, but if I'm in a stand and I see deer movement that like, say I climbed up and I was in a, in a funnel and I was expecting deer to come through me and I saw, deer crossed by me and they were 50 yards away, I'll note that. And then when I come back in, say three weeks, a month later, when I want to come back to that spot, I may go right over there instead, you know, kind of thing. But I don't just move a little bit. I'm usually, I'm usually in an area and then out of it and then, you know, bouncing all over. But you have found success, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, where you're sitting somewhere and, and a couple hours later, you just get this uh, intuition that you need to move a hundred yards and you yes, went ahead yes. and, and moved that in the afternoon and, and end up, uh, uh, getting into them just a hundred yards from where you were that, 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 that morning. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. What we were talking about there, I consider that a little different. I call that more of a shift rather than, than change, or a whole separate hunt, but you're right. I mean, it has been probably, I don't know, a good, it's probably been a dozen, dozen and a half deer that I've killed where I've set up. Um, especially when I go in blind, where I'm going into a spot that I've, I may have looked at in the spring or something, but never been back to. And I walk in there in the dark in the morning, I get there, I look around with my headlamp. I'm going, okay, here's where I want to be. I'll climb up the tree and then maybe it's deer, or maybe it's just sign or something that's telling me when daylight breaks that I need to move. I'll pull everything down, move, like you said, 50, 80, hundred yards, reset up again and, and kill deer there. Um, and like you said, there's times that I'll be in a stand um, especially when I'm in other states and I'm going into these places that I'm, I'm going in blind every single time, um, or just by cyber scouting, I'll get set up. I'll see deer movement and I'll go, okay, well, if they're over there, this is what's going to happen. And then I'll automatically pull everything down, move over to that spot, climb up and, and do that. Yep. So, um, that I do quite often. And, and on that, that reminds me of another really interesting thing I've learned from you. You talk about going to these other states and you're doing some cyber scouting, and you you arrive and you set up camp, and it's night, and you're not opposed to going out there um, in the morning or at night with that headlamp, because and you can spot the sign that kind of pops out on you, and you, you'll go and pick a a tree in the dark. I mean, is that t- tell us a little bit about that? Well, um, I'm not really uh, <coughs> sorry. Um, I'm not really hunting deer. And I'm not really hunting sign 
as much as I am hunting terrain, especially in, uh, in other places. Uh, so you're right. So I've already picked these terrain features, whether it be a saddle, a bench, a funnel, a pinch point, uh, a ridge con- uh, connecting ridges, whatever it is um, that I find. And I'm, I'm picking these things on, you know, using a combination of topo maps, aerial photographs and doing that stuff at home. When I get out there, I set camp up. I look at what the wind direction is going to be. And I make my decision based on usually at first I'm looking at, okay, uh, what area is going to give me walking distance to like two or three of these spots, whether they're 600 yards away or what. But if I walk into one and hate it, um, I don't have to pack out and drive and head somewhere else. I can just transfer over to another one. So I look for one of those areas. It's going to give me a few opportunities. I hike in there in the dark and I'm setting up right where I'm expecting this, this feature, this terrain feature to be that's going to, that's going to make the deer come through there. Uh, and then I am, yeah, I'm using my headlamp. I'm spot checking for any sign that's coming in there, anything like that. And if it looks good, I'll go ahead and set up. If it doesn't look good, I'm not finding what I want. I've gave, I'm usually out there the first time I go in in the morning, it's usually about two to three hours before daylight because I want that extra time if I need to, to walk that five, six, 700, 800 yards to wherever that next place is and check that one. But I can, so I go in blind to areas that I think are going to be good. If it is what I'm looking for, then I'm setting up and I'm doing it in the dark, um, which is a little tricky. It's why I, I rave about good quality headlamps because I can turn that thing up to whatever it is, 400 lumens. And I can basically like, I just turned on a set of headlights and I can see everything around there i can actually without having to go far uh know what tree i can shoot from without having to trim any lanes where i gotta be at how high up i can as i'm climbing the tree be checking with my headlamp to make sure i have clear shooting where i need to um so i can assess all that with that headlamp climb up and be ready for daylight so you don't think that maybe like all that activity at night when they might be the most active affects it well, that's a good point, too. Uh, keep in mind, at night, when I'm expecting that activity, I'm expecting that activity to be around food sources at night in the dark. Okay. Um, they'll bed during food, you know, because they bed during the night as well, too. They're going to bed down yeah. to, uh, you know, chew their cud and regurgitate and stuff. And all that activity is going to take place around food. So yeah. they're not, uh, the places I'm going to be in are going to be as close as possible to either buck beds during the off-season or doe bedding during uh, the rut time, and it's going to be transition zones that are between these areas. And so when I'm there, I'm expecting no deer to be anywhere around there. So and then when they do come through there for the very first time, I will, and they do catch my scent. Even if I walked over their trails, when they do find me or they smell me, I'm already in a position to put an arrow in them if I want to. So you're going out like middle of the night, not necessarily early in the morning. You're doing this in the middle no, of the night. No, it's early in the morning. Okay. Like, well, let's say that, uh, let's say first lights is 7 a.m. or something. Then mm-hmm. uh, I'm usually my first time into an area I've never been there before. Like in this scenario, um, my first day into a new place, I'm going to get out. If, it, if first lights is seven, I'm usually parking my truck at three, um, or th- I'm sorry, at uh, three 30 or four. Okay. That's going to give me about three hours ahead of time to make that decision. But now after that first time in, when I kind of got some ideas and then I've already looked at another place, I got some ideas in my head. I'm usually one is usually on stand about 40 minutes before light normally, even if it's an area I haven't hunted, but if I know it a little bit, you know what I mean? Um, But if I'm going in completely blind to to a place I've never, ever stepped foot in before, I usually try and get there three hours early just because if I get there and and it's not good, 
I don't want to sit there because I'm, I have to climb up a tree because of daylight. I'd rather have time to move to another place and, and figure that out before daylight. Yeah. I it's, just couldn't even, I couldn't imagine going into a place in the dark and just setting up a tree stand to hunt. That's crazy. And, and so worst case scenario, if the spot isn't great come first light and you sit it out a couple hours, you're going to come down and you're going to go scout and, and you're going to be figuring, putting the pieces together and figuring it out for, for the, the evening hunt, the next day, and so on and so forth, right? Correct. But I usually, um, usually I'm in a position where I'm going to make that. My, my thought is if I made the decision to actually take all that crap off and put it on a tree and start going up, um, I, I made that decision for a good reason. So, my, you know, and there's times I'll climb up and daylight will break and I go, I don't know if I made the right decision. And I have to tell myself, you know what, you wouldn't have came up here if it wasn't good. So trust it, you know, and, and believe it or not, that has worked to my benefit more times than not. So many times I thought, I don't know if I really like this spot. I'm not staying real long. Um, and real long for me would be instead of getting down at noon or one, I'm getting down at 1030 um, would be my attitude. But you'd be amazed how many times you'll see the biggest year of your life in those spots. Um, so I try real hard to convince myself that you picked a spot for a reason and you chose to climb the tree, which means have faith in it. Um, yeah. But like I said, Sometimes I do have to do a little shift, as we talked about. I might be off by, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 yards, even 10 yards sometimes, which is a pain in the butt. Nothing will make you more mad than when you climb up a tree and you realize that you've got deer movement and they're passing by you at 25 yards. And I got to get down and move, you know, 10 yards over so I can actually shoot them when they come through there. That's, that's a bummer. That upsets you. You know, it's a lot of crap to bring down, move over and bring back up, you know, but it's uh those shifts I, I i'll tolerate those all day long but if i pick a spot uh and i decide to climb the tree i'm pretty much staying there until it's time to get down just uh because i i should have that confidence in it but best case scenario you're only going to stay there for one day correct exactly that's my attitude exactly yeah. i'm 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 hitting the spot one time and i'm not coming the only way i'll come back to it even a month later was if it was really good I may come back, but usually I will try to, if I want to really test the spot out, I'll hit it once in the early season. I'll hit it once during the, during the rut time or a rut phase. Then I'll hit it once in the late season. Uh, if I'm checking what an area is capable of, but as far as me coming back to an area, to the same, you, to the same hundred or 200 yard area for me to come back there again, it's pretty rare. I'll do it more than, uh, you know, once a month kind of thing. So how do you keep yourself from getting hung up? on these spots like you know if you 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 the signs there it seems awesome you see a buck but he doesn't present a shot and it's time to uh you're gonna hunt the next day what 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 decisions do you make on you know i know you're, you might come back in the morning but more than likely you're gonna move are you gonna go further up the drainage or are you gonna go two drainages over i mean how how do you um, prioritize in these situations? Well, if it's here at home, flat ground, there is no drainages. Um, if there's a ditch, <laughs> it's in front of somebody's house, you know, kind of thing. Right, um, but, but you're, uh, you're, hunting hill, you're hunting mountain country or, or hill country, as you guys call it, in a lot of these other states, right? Correct. Yep. Now, yeah, and in those states, um, now, again, when I'm doing, I mean, when I, like, take an example, like, look at Missouri, on um, public land in Missouri, before I head out there, I have four maps that I've made of these areas, and I probably have 35 to 40 spots that I have picked out, whether it's some kind of terrain feature. 
And uh, so for me, if I walk into a spot and I set up like your scenario, you just said, and a decent buck walks by and he's out of range, there's one of two things that can happen. If I feel like he never crossed my scent, never knew I was there and had paid no attention to me, if I decide I want to come back in and try that again and maybe shift that position or move, um, I, I may consider that depending on the size of the deer. And uh, what I, as long as, like I said, I don't think he has any idea I was there. But I'll, I'll battle that in my head knowing that throughout that night, other deer are going to hit my scent trail and know that I was there and it's going to maybe change the course of things and that my odds are lower um, than what they were. So, but if it's, if it's the right deer in the right scenario and the wind's going to be the same and everything's identical, there's a possibility that I might come back and try it, but most likely I'm just going to move to one of those other spots. Cause I'm coming into it with a week to hunt, which means that I may be able to hunt seven to 14 of these spots. And I got, you know, 30 something of them and every one of them could be a new adventure. So I'm, I, I, it's a tricky scenario, but I would say that probably seven out of 10 times, I would just forget about that deer and move on and let somebody else deal with them. Or uh, maybe even come back at the end of the week. Like I said, if I don't think I screwed it up, it may be a fallback place that I'll keep in the back of my head. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, on paper, if you're thinking I got 40 spots and only seven days to hunt, it, I, I guess when you you put it that way, it becomes a no-brainer because you've got so many more areas to go check out that it, it would keep your curiosity uh, moving forward. Exactly. And it's also, it's again, it's the thrill of never knowing. It, you know, every one of these 40 spots are probably a place I've never been into. Well, I've been to Missouri quite a few years now, so out of those, there's probably... You know, there's probably, I'm probably, you know, 20 new ones this year and probably 30 that I've been in before uh, over the years, but it's a whole new year and whole new deer and whole new everything. So technically, even though I may have sat in it before being a whole new year, it's a whole new world. I don't know what could be there. What might've moved into that area? What might've been killed out and something else come in? What grew bigger? You don't know, you know? So um, every one of those is a brand new adventure that I have no idea what can happen. And that there is the biggest draw that I have you know, that means more to me than anything. And it's what lets me, you know, pull all day sits. That's what lets me do all that is you just never know what can come. I don't think I could do an all day sit in the same place two days in a row. I don't think I, I don't think I'd stomach it. And so in the whitetail world, we call this Johnny on the spot, right? So uh, a term that I heard a long, long time ago in a book by some doctor, I can't remember his name, but he, he was talking about that method. He used to use a little stool uh, and he, he did some, Dr. Norberg, I think was his name, but I read it back probably 20 years ago. He wrote a book on it. It was talking about using it for deer and using it for bears. And his, his idea was you just find, you walk through the woods till you find fresh, uh, sign and you set up right there and you wait. He was a gun hunter, but that's what he was doing all the time. And it just kind of stuck with me. Johnny on a spot hunting, you move till you find the area that's good. And then you set up. So h- how often are you Johnny on the spot where you're going up a tree that is unprepped? versus a scouted tree that is prepped it seems like it would at least where i live difficult as we've talked about some of, i tried johnny on the spot a little bit and the pr- biggest problem was the the too many tree limbs too much no shooting lanes uh, that must be the challenge in finding the right tree that and it's in that terrain feature that you don't have to do a bunch of trimming can you speak to that yeah and that's a, that is my number one battle is trying to find a spot. And uh, people say to me too, why don't you carry four sticks? 
I carry three sticks with me. Three sticks will get me about 17, 18 feet up because I, I cheat on that first one. I put uh, the bottom row. I put it up as high as I can reach it right off the ground, and I basically grab the stick and walk up the tree till I get to that first step, which gives me some height. But uh, um, a lot of the times, realistically, I, I mean, a ton of the times I'm using either one stick or two sticks, and I may be five feet, six feet, eight feet, 10 feet, 12 feet. That might be as high as I can go because of the uh, – because of the shooting lane situation. Sometimes I'm in a tree that's, you know, the diameter of my, my bicep. I mean, you, you know, you can barely get the stand to hang on it and uh, I'm eight feet in the air and I'm standing up, you know, with, you know, stretched out as far as I can with my hands at my side, trying to look like a tree up there. Um, you know, (laughs) but it's the only place that you got any cover or, you know, and every time the wind blows, you're basically, it's almost like you're, you're riding a polvo pole and you're almost touching the ground, you know? Um, but it's, uh, you know, cause you can't, you don't have the luxury of trimming lanes. You can trim something in the tree you're in maybe. Um, but you don't have, if you get down from your tree or before you climb your tree, you start getting out there and making a circle around clearing shooting lanes. Uh, you've defeat any time a deer crosses any part of that scent trail, especially here in Michigan, they cross one boot track and they're out of there. That tail is up. They snort and they jump straight up into the air and they disappear. They won't tolerate it. So you can't put that scent on the ground. Um, and there's also a lot of times I'll walk into an area and I'll go, this looks really good. Um, but I can't hunt it cause I've actually already walked five steps too far. So I cannot set up here. I need to keep going forward until I find more sign or equal sign or better sign, but I cannot hunt this place. I walked by it too far already and there's no way an animal could come into here and I could shoot it because I've already screwed it up by walking too far. So your, your ozonic machine isn't covering that up for you? <laughs> uh, the one doesn't do it very well, but I usually bring three or four with me. That's why I bought that bigger backpack. And if I put them all over the place, sometimes I guess it works. <laughs> okay. Well, we know yeah. you don't use, we know you're not using that. Tell, get, speak to uh scent control for us. Uh, uh, scent control, in my opinion, would be putting on a square cologne before you go out on date night with your wife. That would be about <laughs> as far as I take it. You know, I'm not a fan of it, but my hunting style is that way. I mean, again, I remember I'm coming in with the attitude that I don't care if I destroy that area because I'm not coming back to it. And anything that comes in, um, anything that comes in downwind to you with the exception of an ozonics machine. And I don't even know if those, I mean, they're probably the closest thing we got to, to being able to beat the wind. And I'll be honest with you, when you can beat the wind a hundred percent, I don't think I'll hunt anymore. And if it just, without that, what's the point of trying this challenge? You know, um, it just doesn't make it, make it a challenge anymore. Cause that's all a deer, a deer has is his nose. And when you can beat that a hundred percent, uh, you're, you're not even in the game, you know, it's a David Goliath battle then, and it's not worth it. Um, so, but, uh, so, so you're telling, me, you're telling me that you're relying on uh woodsmanship. Well, something like that. Yeah. I mean, that's what a lot of people used to call it. But I think our grandpa called it that. Yeah. Now it's called uh, old style. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, but, uh, but yeah, it's, you know, I, I don't, I don't use any scent control stuff. I, I spent, I've, I've probably killed 30 deer in my blue jeans and a pair of tennis shoes that I just got done, you know, filling the car with gas and running the lawnmower and a chainsaw in, you know, <laughs> you ran, you ran a podcast recently and you were telling guys like, if you have to have this certain outfit to go deer hunting, Stick it on your barbecue, light it up, and burn it. You know that's going to keep. If that's going to keep you out of the woods, get rid of it. Um, if if you get off work and you got two hours to hunt, and you think you need to go uh, spray down and put all this stuff on, and you don't have enough time to hunt, then stop doing it. Go hunting, right? 
That's exactly right. If you, you're not going to kill a deer in a, from your house, and uh, they honestly, like I said, uh, if you're playing a wind right and you're doing what it's expected to do, and you're you know especially with the mobile style of hunting, um, the first time that that deer is going to come by there and even have a chance of interacting with any of your scent, he will be within range of you to kill him, or he will walk by where it doesn't matter, and you're not coming back there again anyway. So, um, like I said, and if it wasn't for not paying attention to scent control. I would not have killed at least three quarters of the deer that I have because of the fact that, that not caring and literally going out in jeans and a tennis shoe. Um, and actually I got one, I got a pair of uh, hunting pants, uh, that my wife laughs at me cause I think they're size 40 or 42. Um, and are designed for me to be able to, with my shoes on, um, be able to literally pull them right over my, my blue jeans. Cause I, I, I guess deer see blue jeans. Um, I've killed a lot of deer in them, but they say they can see them. So I would bring these jeans out there with me so that I can literally be in my work clothes and what I'm wearing, run out there, just pull these things on real quick and put a belt on them and uh, climb up in a tree. And that way I at least got a little camo on. I used to do that, um, you know, back when I thought it mattered. Now I just hunt in the jeans. Yeah, like, like Dan Infault, right, uh, from the Hunting Beast, he, he puts on like jumpsuits. Yep, yep. I mean, and there's, now where you guys live out there, I 100% agree with uh, the technical advances in clothing that are out there, especially uh, you guys being mobile and moving and running as much as you are. And, uh, you know, the, the lifestyle of hunting that's out there, I can get it. But for your average guy that's going out to hunt whitetails, you don't need all that stuff. Like I said, you can be out there in a pair of blue jeans and a, and a you know, a $10 Walmart flannel shirt, and you're going to have just as much luck as a guy who's in, you know, $300 camel outfit. It makes no difference whatsoever. Right. So, right. uh, speaking on that, uh, gets pretty cold. I'm sure up where you're at, you do all day sits. Yeah. Some of them we did. Uh, I think I set a record last year in Missouri. We hit a, uh, me and Joel went back there to uh, fill a couple of leftover dough tags we had. And, uh, we were there for four days and, uh, two of those days, one of them, uh, that evening we hit minus 17 degrees and that was on an all day sit. We were there for, you know, from sun up till an hour after dark. Oh, that was brutal. Man. All right. So you got to, yep. You got to tell me what you're wearing. I, I struggle. That's one of my biggest struggles. I don't sit all day just because of that. I, but I also have to hike a ways to most of my stands. And if there's snow, it's, we get that wet, real wet snow, you know, and, and I just have, I cannot stay warm no matter what I do. I've tried packing all my stuff with me and just wearing, you know, like a different pair of boots and everything, changing a couple hundred yards before I get to my stand. But even then, in that couple hundred yards, and I put all my clothes on, I start sweating like a horse, and then I get up in my stand, and next thing you know, an hour later, I'm freezing. Right. Yep. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I probably hung a hundred tree stands in my underwear before. You know, <laughs> it's, uh, I'm, I'm not lying. Yeah. I'm pretty serious. You know, and I, I'm, I'm, there's been people that have actually watched me walk down a trail before on the way there, where I'm wearing nothing but my hiking, you know, my my hunting boots and my underwear and everything else is on my my backpack and my tree stand, yeah. and I'm literally walking right down a trail that way. Just, just <laughs> you know, to keep but uh, sweating. Yeah. Now the the for the cold. Now for me. Um, my layering system, everything for me revolves around my thermal layers. That's, uh, that's my whole entire, everything, uh, outer layers for me are just a shell, whether it's to break wind or just, uh, uh, give me some extra pockets in a pair of car, you know, cotton cargo pants, uh, whatever the case is, uh, or, it, but all of my, 
thermal control is done through my thermal layers. And uh, now for me, I wear these simple Rocky ones. Uh, they don't make them anymore, but they used to, they're just like a midweight polar fleece uh, or, th- uh, you know, like a thicker weight, heavyweight polar fleece thermal. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, I have probably, I, I buy them when they were on sale, but I, uh, um, I probably got 20 or 30 of these. Well, for me, <laughs> my entire all season long layering system is basically four sets of these. So what that means is if let's say that the temperatures are going to be, uh, it's going to be 60 degrees, you know, 60 degree during the day and co- dropping down to the, you know, upper forties in the morning, I may wear a pair of those thermals, a pair of cotton pants and a cotton t-shirt. And I'll have my uh, vest that I put on over it. And uh, that'll be my whole thing throughout the whole day. Uh, now, when you get into, uh, you start dropping colder, I'm going to add a layer of thermals to that. When it gets colder than that, I'm adding one more layer of thermals. When it gets freezing bitter cold, I'm adding one more layer of thermals. And then I may go to like a wool um, pant and a wool shirt over top of that um, kind of thing. But it's all done through those. And in that way, even in the wintertime, if I got a mile hike in carrying, you know, 40 pounds of gear with my stand sticks and all my stuff, yeah. um, I can actually leave my truck in one set of thermal underwear, one thermal t-shirt and my boots. And then I can hike in. I'll actually hang the stand that way. Once I get up on the stand, um, I will actually get dressed up there, which is kind of a chore to do with a harness oh, on, but yeah. I figured ways out to do it. It's kind of tricky. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it takes a little finagling, but, uh, um, but I will actually do that and get dressed, or I may just wait at the bottom of my tree. Like I'll hang the stand, and then instead of pulling my pack up and getting dressed up there, I'll hang the stand, climb back down, I'll give it 10 minutes, let my body temperature cool down, and then I'll get dressed down there and then climb up. But what okay. that gives me, too, is if I'm going to move from that stand to another stand without heading to a car, I can then, when I get to the bottom of the tree, strip back down to that one layer of thermals, hike to wherever I'm going to hunt, hang that stand. And then once I cool down, get dressed again for the set. So those four layers of thermals are my whole world. Nice. And then what do you do for shoes? If it's going to be, you know, 10 degrees out shoes and socks. Yep. Uh, socks. Uh, well, the, the one thing you Western guys will laugh at me for is there is not a day that goes by that I'm not wearing cotton. Um, I like <laughs> standard cotton Hanes underwear and, uh, you know, I wear those and I wear a cotton t-shirt every single day of the year. doesn't matter what I'm doing. And I'm wearing white cotton socks every single day as well too, even when I'm hunting. Um, but for me, uh, you know, I'll, I'll add, I have like, you know, it's kind of pointless, I guess I'm wearing cotton, cotton socks, but then I'm wearing really nice, like wool socks over them <laughs> kind of defeats the purpose of the moisture wicking. Um, but, uh, but I'll wear insulated, you know, I'll bring insulated socks with me out there. Um, if I need to, for that, I do pick different boots. I have a pair of uninsulated keen boots that I wear early season, a pair of 200 gram insulated keen boots that I wear, uh, you know, through the mid season, a set of 400 uh, Graham Keen boots that I wear later in the year. And then I also have uh, a set of um, like thousand grain, Rocky, big blizzard stalker, big boots that I can wear if it's super cold. And I also got a pair of, you know, I got uh, rubber boots too. When I'm in the water and swamps and stuff, I got, you know, regular lacrosse burlies, 800 lacrosse burlies and some uh, Baffin Titan things that are rated for like 140 below or something. So I wear those yeah. um, and then just insulate with socks. But one trick that you might learn that you're, you might actually like for where you're at that works nice is I take a pair of ri- the thickest socks that I can find, thickest insulated socks. Um, I buy them, and then I bring them home. And what I do is with scissors, I cut them right in half across the foot. And uh, then I just fray that end with a uh, lighter so it's not loose. 
And then what I'll do is I carry those in my backpack. If I get into a stand and my feet get cold, I'll take a hand warmer. I'll take those socks, those basically those toe covers is what they become. I'll put them over the toes and the first half of them right over top of my boot. And I'll oh. stuff a toe warmer in them or a hand oh. warmer in the top of them. And that'll make a tremendous amount of difference while you're on stand. Oh, that's yeah. Idea. Yeah. I've got some, they're called, um, super, uh-huh. I've got some super sneaky safari sneakers or something. They're a police that goes over your boot and they're designed for stocking without taking your boots off. A lot of guys will, you know, I'll take my boots off to sneak in on a mule deer. Well, I bought these like when I first got into hunting and I never used them. You, you, this is big fleece thing with this fleece like mop on the bottom and they're all fleece and they, they're designed to go over your boot. And I started using them for tree stand hunting when it's really cold. I bring them and I put them over my boots and it creates quite a bit of warmth. Yeah, and it and yeah, it makes make a big difference. Yeah, and it makes your tree stand when you're standing on your stand real quiet. Right, which especially in the winter when you got ice build up on there and snow on the bottom of your boots, it's a whole different ball game. Uh, trying to be quiet on stand, so those come in handy. Arctic Shield makes another really nice pair that um, that I've tried. I just haven't um, haven't carried them yet or got them. Um, but uh, but I did try them on, and those were pretty sweet. They flip right over your boots, and it's almost like a sleeping bag. Now, that's another great idea, too, um, is if, you you know, with the heavier layers and stuff. Now, I used to do this quite often, and I still do it with my kids, um, but you can buy a cheap, square, rectangular sleeping bag, 20-degree bag from Walmart for, like, $20, and uh, then what you do is just bring that and then just bring a belt or a piece of rope and pack it out there with you. When you get on your stand, step into it, and then pull it right up, you know, tie it right around your waist, uh, so that it stays there tight and then just kind of drape it right up over your shoulders and pull yourself in there nice and it'll keep you really warm. And then when you do get the opportunity, you just drop, let that bag fall down by your waist and that rope holds it there. And then you, it's almost like a cheap man's heater body suit. That's what I need right there. That's a genius idea. Just pack a sleeping bag with Yeah, me. just make sure don't get a <laughs> mummy bag. No mummy bags because you won't have any movement. Next yeah. thing you know, you'll be hanging from your harness. Yeah, that's a good idea. I could just pack a t-shirt or pair of long johns and a sleeping bag that'd be perfect <laughs> yeah well like i said uh, i do it for my I you mean, know, I, my kids will be out there in december and they'll be hunting in, you know it'll be 20 degrees out and they'll be sitting in a tree stand and uh they'll they'll hold up just fine if i put them in that sleeping bag yeah whatever it takes to stay man i i like i said i kind of got it down to a system to where i'll sit till 10 or 11 that's about all i can take and then i'll get down and i kind of still hunt and I might try rattling a little bit, you know, my way to a, another preset stand I have for the evening, set that for a couple hours. It's kind of my system I came up with, but be nice to figure out that the warmth thing. You know, I, the, uh, I, and I don't, I've never hunted blacktails, so I don't know how they work out there, but I, I know they're pretty nocturnal and stuff, but um here with whitetails, uh, especially during the rut, um, that, uh, basically that 10 o'clock until two o'clock time is probably, it is in my opinion, probably, uh, better than any other time of the day to be on stand. That is prime time. Like if I got a, I usually will sit, um, from sun up until one thirty, two o'clock, get down, scout a spot and be back on stand for the last two hours of daylight. But that, that 10 to two, uh, or at least 10 to noon is, uh, is one heck of a gold mine time frame. It's probably the same for blacktails. It's just the time uh, I miss. <laughs> no, he's right. he's he's right. I, I've been really uh, last year was the beginning of my all day sits, and 
unfortunately, I didn't really pay attention. You know, I was just more like talking myself into sitting all day and kind of dozing off in the middle of the day. And I got caught at noon with the doe come right by my stand. I looked down and there is a wall hanger right behind her pushing on her. And they, they came in and left as, as, as fast as I, I, I wasn't ready. I got caught. I got caught with my pants down basically. Um, but there's definitely something to it. I think that there is a lot of movement in the middle of the day that a lot of guys are missing. Well, I think the reason for it here in the whitetail world is because uh, um, you have basically four times of heavy, heavy human activity that is going to be right before daylight when they're walking in at 10 o'clock when they're walking out at four o'clock when they're walking in and at six thirty or seven when they're walking back out. Those are your key movements of people time, car doors slamming, cars driving around, people walking around in the woods, voices, all that stuff. And then all of a sudden you got this four hour period in the middle of the day where it's dead quiet and nothing's happening. And uh, that I think is one of the big reasons for it, especially in pressured areas, but it's a gold mine, but there is nobody out there. I mean, literally uh, if, if I hunt, you know, you hunt and if, if I were to hunt on a weekend, which I usually don't do because I'm not around, you know, but if I was hunting on a weekend on a Sunday and uh, I'm on public land, like clockwork at 10 o'clock, you can hear a hundred cars start up and drive away without fail. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's like a clock, you know, literally. So, yeah. I mean, I think that's a big reason. They pattern the hunters. Also, I mean, don't you agree, Robert? Sure, these bucks are super nocturnal, but it's nothing to see a black-tailed doe out in the middle of the day feeding. Like, they're always feeding in the middle of the day. They're always moving around. And if you're in pre-rut and, and that October 25th to November 15th time frame, the, the bucks are going to be where those does are at. Yeah, I've... I mean, I hunt them all day. Like I said, I just can't sit that long. I've I've right. missed a lot of bucks in the middle of the day, you know, out, out right. still hunting for yep. sure. And it's it's they're nocturnal, but you're just trying to catch them those few days a year they're not. And that could be well, any time, you know. Well, well, think with your new climbing stand, how you could get cold and then come down and go choose a new spot yeah. and then get back up and sit for another four hours and then come down and move over and, and and you can just move three times a day. Yeah. Now with that climbing stand, do you, uh, uh, not to get too far off topic, but interesting, something I was just answering a question for somebody else on, um, are you, are you going to deal with a lot of trees that are limbed that are going to kind of make it tough for you on there or where you're at? Is that not usually an issue? No, there's a lot of limbs over here, but I, I bought that, uh, climbing stand specifically for a late mule deer hunt I've been hunting. And there's a lot of aspens, so uh, yep. and they get real thick. And there's very few limbs on a lot of those aspens, and so that's kind of specifically yep. what I bought it for. I, I probably yep. won't be Which using it much. Nice. I want much blacktail hunting this year. Uh, I probably won't be doing much blacktail hunting this year, just because I would have to go up. Like you said, we have a lot of you know fur, and you got to trim a lot of limbs. <laughs> yep. Yep. And yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, yeah, cause I was talking to a guy and he bought one and he was wondering what he can do when he runs into it. You know, some of his trees, he's got one, like one or two big limbs he's got to get by. And uh, I was telling him, you bring an extra, you bring a strap on step with you. They got a couple good strap on steps that are out there, uh, that are pretty, pretty decent little setup and they're pretty lightweight. You take one of those, throw it on that tree, leave your lineman belt hooked and you can, uh, pop that climber off, move it right up above that limb and keep right on keep, going. You know? Keep rolling. Yeah. I, you know, I've, all the stand hunting I've done 
has been, like you said, I, I buy cheap stands. I don't think I ever paid more than $50 for one. Uh, I leave a lot of them up, you know, and I go back and they're, you know, they're all kind of ratted and tattered. And I bought one of those climbers this year, um, just for that hunt. And man, those lone wolf stands, those things are, are money. I mean, that thing's yeah, light. It's yeah, quiet. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, those are awesome. So I'm super yeah. pumped to spend some time in that, uh, spend some time in a good stand for once. Yeah, you need to get yourself one of the um, one of the lone wolf assault twos, like me and Jason are running for blacktails. You you will love it. Yeah, maybe next year. Yeah, yeah, it's a nice little setup. Couple of sticks fits together really nice. And uh, yeah, I mean, once you get your little system down, like I know James, you're using a, you you got an XO pack. You're the one that turned me on to the XO pack, and yeah. uh, I love that system. I mean, this is uh, man, it's like I said, I'm, I've been testing this thing nonstop and. Uh, first time I'll be able to use it. It'll be coming up here in a few days, but I'm, I'm excited. This thing just goes through the woods and it's quick and simple. I mean, I can, when I hit the base of a tree and decide that's the tree I'm going up, it's about three and a half to four minutes, depending, maybe, maybe another half a minute, but that's when I'm sitting in that stand with my bow in my hand, ready to hunt, you know? So tell us about in mountain country and hill country, how, where, how you're picking your tree um, you know, elaborate. I, I know some of the stuff that, uh, we've learned from Diana, Dan Infault at the hunting beast, um, with the uh, leeward side of the ridge, but uh, elaborate on a, a little bit of that on how, you know, some of these spots you're picking and why you're picking them. Uh, mainly I'm focusing on, on a few different things. Saddles are always good, you know, and you guys out there being mountainous, you know what saddles are. So, I mean, you guys know what all these terms are, I'm sure. If not, say something and I'll tell you. But saddles are always prime spots. Um, another thing I look for is benches, and benches can be seen right on a topo map. You look for that wide, uh, you know, contour line and uh, steep, um, you know, tight contour lines on both sides. That's a classic perfect bench. Okay, so when, uh, you're, set, when you're setting up on the saddle – are you setting up right in the center of the saddle? Are you setting up on the high side, the low side? Are you falling off on the leeward side? Like, how, how do you choose your spot in the saddle? I'm actually turning a saddle into an intersection, uh, kind of one of my little secrets. A lot of people will sit in the saddle. Um, I don't actually care about the saddle so much because I know deer are going to go there. So what I'm doing is I'm drawing an imaginary line down that saddle right through the, through the notch. And then where that's going to meet the leeward side and that third of the way down where I'm going to get an intersection spot for any deer that's going to cross that side, that's going to side hill that leeward side. And then where any deer are going to go up and over or through that saddle, I want that intersection. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. I don't usually, it's, it's, I've tried real hard to not sit a one option stand. I don't like, cause I'm not real good at telling what deer are going to do. I can pick the spots they're going to do something in, but trying to decide what they're going to do. They always do the exact opposite of what I'm planning them to do. So uh, my best option is to pick a place where I'm going to have the most options of them doing something in my area. So I'm looking for multiple opportunities. The only time I'll sit one way option is uh, a classic tight kind of, uh, funnel or maybe one bench on a long ridge where I don't have a choice for anything else. But even there, I'm looking for something. I'll walk a bench. I won't walk right on it because I don't want my scent on there, but I'll walk a bench until it takes me to a draw or it takes me to something that is even a blowdown that's uh, blocking, you know, 50 feet of hillside. I need something that's going to help me transition those deer and make things a little more legit and give me more options is what I'm looking for. 
So with a saddle, I want the intersection of the saddle and a, and the side hill. Okay, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And and while while you're looking for these spots, going back into that scent control, I know Dan Infault was asked, and he said milkweed. That that's his scent control, milkweed. Um, maybe maybe elaborate and tell uh, the listeners who don't know about milkweed. You you mailed me some. Um, you know how how that works uh, uh, and and plays a role in your hunting. Yeah, milkweed is uh, a plant. I don't know. If, I don't think it grows anywhere out there by you guys. It's kind of a more Midwest, uh, you know, Eastern kind of uh, plant. But basically, it's just got a lot of real, the, probably the lightest, um, you know, naturally made fluff material there is. And uh, I got videos on it that you can see um, as well, too. Um, but this stuff here, you take it, and uh, when you're up in your tree stand, you can let a piece of this go. It's white, it's fluffy, and it floats on, I mean, any air current whatsoever. So you can actually watch this float for 50 or 100 yards away, and you can see it rise and fall, and it goes between things and down valleys, and it'll pop back up with thermals. And you can see exactly what your scent is doing as that scent falls off your body. What, what our scent is created by is actually skin particles falling off of our body. Well, that's very light too, and the wind carries those. Well, this is showing you exactly where that's being carried. And uh, so I use it tremendously because a lot of times in that hill country, you start hunting, uh, you start hunting that wind tunnel where you got uh, prevailing wind coming over one way and thermals coming off the bottom. Uh, you're in a pretty precarious spot. Well, you can use that thermal or that uh, milkweed as you're climbing up that tree to see where your scent is actually making it out far enough over that trail before it gets caught in that thermal and gets sucked back up to you. You can find the places with that milkweed that's going to be a good, legit place for you to sit. Yeah, and so we also, I've discovered there's some stuff called uh, like a thistle that when it, when it uh, flowers or seeds, it, it has the same, it's kind of like a, it's, Robert, it's kind of like dandelion. It's like this light, fluffy, you know, you see the thistles when they get all that white stuff. Yeah. And it, when we're running and gunning and elk hunting, we'll use smoke in the bottle, you know, some, some powder. And that's fine to kind of figure out what's going left and right. But when you use this stuff, it, it blows this powder in the bottle when you're up in your stand because you can see it for like 100 yards. You can watch it go up and down and left and right and come back or eddy and eddy it's amazing what it can teach you yeah i think yeah i think a lot of times guys that don't have luck sitting in stands like it's because of the wind you know they just don't have an understanding of it i know a couple of my best stands it's it's the wind you know i'm kind of on a ridge a little bit there's a crosswind and i get those bucks cruising into the wind but i but I catch them just enough to where they're not quite catching my scent, you know, several of the big bucks. Yeah, I've killed it. There. Yep. And if you don't have milkweed, Robert, if you've never used it, um, when, you know, when we're done, make sure you text me your address. I just got done picking. I think I picked uh I don't know. I think I picked like a grocery bag full of it. And realistically <laughs> one pod will last you an entire year. So I oh, got perfect. enough that, uh, same with you, James, if you need more, let me know. I just sent a bunch out to Dan Rudman and Red, I sent out like, I don't know, 10 or 15 of these to people. So if you need more, tell me, you know, give me your info. And uh, so I got it again and I'll send you guys out more for it, but it's, it's probably the best wind detector system there is. Nice. Yeah. And there's actually yeah. a lot of guys on, uh, on that hunting beast forum for people that do want some and don't, you know, don't have access to it. <laughs> Excuse me. There's a lot of people on like that hunting beast forum and stuff that, uh, 
you know, they do pick a bunch of this and they have it available and they'll mail it to you for a small fee of shipping, you know, kind of thing. So there's people out there, you know, they can get it for you. Yeah. And so the guy, so the guys listening, there's a, there's a a whitetail form called the hunting beast uh, and it's owned and operated by Dan Infault. And it is hands down the best hunting whitetail tree stand hunting form. If you want to learn more about this mobile tree stand hunting, um, uh, Jason has got some really good podcasts about it. If you go to the traditional uh, bow hunting wilderness podcast, um, and then also go to uh, the hunting beast and there's, they have a, a, I think they've got a podcast and they have just loads of free information along with DVDs they sell that can teach you. Um, uh, it's it's a lifetime of information on hunting public land or just hunting mobile and not relying on all these gadgets. And these guys are, are taking some serious bucks and they're doing it um, right under the nose of all these other hunters uh, with just woodsmanship. It's awesome. Yeah. They're guys, I mean, it's a forum filled with uh, guys that live, eat, and breathe this stuff. I mean, they're not, not many of them are small game hunters. Not many of them go fishing. I mean, they're 365 days a year whitetail fanatics that do this stuff on, on pressured places. And I mean, they're, they're this, the, now you'll never find a place that'll give you more deer hunting knowledge than there. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really good stuff. And, and, you know, Jason, uh, practices all this stuff and he's got a lot of really good information, um, on his podcast too. So you just, you know, got to thumb through the, uh, his episodes and there's, there's a lot of good stuff out there for you guys. So why don't you, um, kind of wrap this up with, you know, uh, you know, maybe a really good, one of your favorite stories on, you know, how you, from start to finish on, you know, you going and setting up and, and, and putting it all together. Uh, Hmm. Uh, let me think here on something that would be interesting. Um, I killed a, uh, I killed a 10 point in Missouri a few years ago. And, uh, walked into an area blind, followed a Creek in the whole entire way, just cause I didn't know where, you know, I didn't want any scent getting in there anywhere, anything like that. Completely blind when we, like we were talking about three hours before, you know, any kind of daylight, uh, found a spot there, crawled up in there. And, uh, once I got set up in there, uh, found out that I actually had made it within about 50 yards of three bucks that were bedded there. Not, they were about 50 yards away from me, which was pretty crazy to be able to even pull that off. It shocked me that they were there. They might've even came in after I was set up and bedded down that I didn't know about, but when first light broke, I saw antlers over there. Um, so that was pretty neat. Uh, none of them came in my direction. They all wandered off right after daylight. I'm assuming to, they were just taking a break, you know, kind of thing for chasing deer, but they wandered off. And then I had a, uh, um, I had, uh, that big 10 point come in, chasing a doe came right up the same Creek that I was in, but I was in water. So they had no idea I was there. Uh, came up, they ran around me about four different times, left the area. I never got a shot. I, I actually bleated at them, you know, eh, eh, trying to get them to stop. I couldn't even get him to stop to the point where I actually yelled at him once. I just yelled, Hey, <laughs> you know, and he didn't pay any attention to nothing. He just kept chasing her all over. Uh, ran her back out of there. I sat back down thinking, well, that's a heck of a morning already. We'll see what else happens. And I started dozing off, kind of taking a nap. You know, you just, you get, your eyes get heavy and you start going. All of a sudden I heard a stick break 
looked down through the grate of my tree stand and that 10 point was standing directly underneath me. And, uh, he was standing there and he was sniffing the bottom rung of my step. It was, uh, you know, my first stick on there. And I was like, Oh my God. And I couldn't move. I, and I actually knew that I had mud on my boots from coming into that Creek. And I was like, I can't even move my feet. If I, I shift anything, it's going to drop dirt on him and he's going to be <laughs> out of here. So I had to sit there and wait. He walks over about probably, I want to say it was maybe 18 yards behind me, 18, 19 yards. And he beds down and he laid there for three and a half hours right there behind me. No shot opportunity, no nothing. I watch him relax there. Finally, a doe comes in on the other side of the creek. He stands up to get her attention. He starts walking over there, trying to get over there where he might be able to get downwind of her. You know, he's, he's, he's upwind of me. Or I mean, downwind or yeah, upwind of me. So he can't smell me, whatever way that is. So I'm good. (laughs) Well, he starts to circle around me. And uh, to try and get her win, and as he does, I ended up taking him at 15 yards, put him right down on the ground. That was a pretty interesting hunt. Oh man, well, that's like intense. Awesome morning. Yeah, that is yeah, awesome. It was probably one of the best. It was it was a good morning. I've I've had some pretty pretty crazy ones. I had one after I had filled my buck tag in Missouri, where you're you know, so I couldn't shoot anymore. And uh, and, and I actually I, I have it on film, but it's pretty bad because it was a cold morning, and this was when you I was using a, a Canon GL2 camera, and it had tapes in it. And it tapes kind of got, you know, condensation in there. So it was real bad, skippy kind of footage. But uh, in one morning, the day after I had killed my buck, filled my buck tag, I was trying to fill a doe tag. And I was in a new area I'd never been in before. And uh, I had 11 shooter bucks underneath me. Some of them downwind of me. They must have been a couple of hot does up in the CRP field above me um, because they just would not leave my area. For hours, I had 11 shooter bucks all over me and could not do nothing of them. And some of them I'm guessing pushing 140 inches. And uh, like I said, the ones that walked downwind of me, if they were big, they bailed. Uh, But most of them were on that CRP side upwind of me. And so they weren't, you know, they weren't catching my scent. Um, They were just working that edge back and forth. And then a couple of the, you know, if they were, there was an eight pointer bigger rule. Um, and I honestly believe when you introduce antler point restrictions, you create very stupid deer. Um, I was in Missouri from when they started that. And the first year I was there, a spike buck was a smart buck. After a few years of, you know, when they're a, sp- a button buck and they don't get shot, and then they're a spike and they walk by hunters and smell them and nothing happens, then they're a four-point and nothing happens, or a six-point and nothing happens, they, they lose that fear. There's no consequence of a hunter to them anymore, so they get dumb to it. Um, once they get to be an eight-point, they start getting shot at. Uh, so it's a different ball game for them. But you would have these six points and four points. They could be downwind of me all day long at 10 yards and not care that I was there. And, and again, with my uh, no scent control whatsoever. So it was a very interesting day where, I mean, like I said, 11 shooter bucks and I got a doe tag in my pocket. Ah, oh, hmm. man. Jeez, man. Well, yep. you, you, you got, uh, you, you got any, anything else you want to ask Robert? Yeah. Hey, um, have you, do you get snow up there in Michigan, right? Do you get that in the later oh, season? Yep. or Yeah. Do you ever try yep. tracking them? Have you ever tracked them in the snow? I know I've read the that Benoit book, uh, Larry Benoit. You heard of him? He passed away yep. a few years ago, and he wrote that book back in the day. And we've we messed, we've do, do it a little bit of it over here when we get a fresh snow. I got a buddy who's he's killed a giant tracking it a few years ago. And I was just wondering if you, I know we're talking tree stands, not to get off subject, but. 
I, I don't track them too often. The reason for that is uh, the deer here really shift ranges and yard up towards the wintertime. Because uh, when we get snow, we get quite a bit. I'm in that snow belt area where we might have, you know, we could have three to four feet of snow. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're actually, they're, they're that time of year, it's a whole different world for them. Now, earlier, like if I get some snow in late November and we get a you know, where we get a dusting three, four, five, six inches. Uh, yes, I do. I do exactly what you're saying where I'll backtrack them. Um, but it's not like I get a lot of opportunity to do it after the season is over. Like a lot of people would in the winter, because all I'm seeing is where they're yarding up after the winter season or after the hunting season is yeah. over. Yeah. Um, but one advantage we have of the snow is that it preserves all of the rut activity and all of the active trails and all the scrapes and everything are perfectly preserved under the snow. <clears throat> so in March, when the snow melts, I immediately get out there and I'll spend two straight months before the fringe come up scouting everything because all of the, the scrapes, the trails, the sign, everything I'm seeing is signed it was during the rut and during the hunting season. Yeah, awesome. So I, I know we, we keep wanting to compare everything to blacktails, <laughs> but... The whitetail is the most prolific game animal in North America. They have them in every state. We have them here in Oregon. Um, they're pursued, you know, everywhere. So I know that a, a lot of our listeners are whitetail hunters. So can you just give, you know, some maybe three sound some sound advice to guys that are wanting to get into mobile or just are whitetail hunters? Like, what, what's some advice you have for these guys this fall, Jason? Well, for the mobile hunters, uh, get yourself a good lineman belt. That's that's the key. Of, of all the tools I have, the most valuable one I have is that lineman belt with the, that I make with the ascender unit on there. <clears throat> the reason for it is I can I can make that happen one-handed control. It's it's like a Prusik knot, but I can do it one-handed very fast, and it'll keep you safe, and it lets you have both hands free to hang stands, pull things down. Uh, it, it's, you can, in my opinion, you cannot be a tree stand hunter without a lineman belt. A lot of people talk about tethers, uh, and I run a tether. They say, well, a tether is okay after you've used a lineman belt to hang your stand. But in order to get up to the top of the tree to hang a tether, you need to use a lineman belt. So a lineman belt is, is very, very important. Um, I've done videos on them. It's, I've done posts on them. So there's information out there or call me on how to make your own if you want to with an ascender unit on it. Or you can buy like a lone, I think the best production one you can buy is made by Lone Wolf. Uh, there, there's with the Prusik knot. It's lightweight. It's durable. It's 39 bucks, I think, and it's well worth it. But a lineman belt is everything, is the number one tool that you're going to have to have when you're out there. And make sure your harness has got the attachment points, the loops for that lineman belt to connect you. Otherwise, buy another harness because you got to, that lineman belt is is vitally important. Um, Also, for tree stand hunters, make sure that you test your system as far as how you're going to pack your sticks, your stand, how you're going to keep all this stuff quiet. Um, and get this system down that's going to work for you for carrying it in and everything organized. Once you have that organized, go out and find the brushiest, nastiest place you got and walk through it with that stuff on your back and find out where you need to make adjustments, uh, what's snagging, whether it's got to ride higher, lower, what you got to put where so that it doesn't bother you. Figure this stuff out ahead of time because deer will not let you, especially black tails, especially black tails, you will not get away with an error. Hey, you don't have that second opportunity. So make sure your system is hundred uh, percent in order um, for your deer hunting in general. Uh, I would say that play the wind is the number one, but that's a given. So that's kind of a cheater one. Second <laughs> would be uh, 
move yourself around in the mobile aspect. Realize, just keep in the back of your head that every time you put a footprint down on the ground, and I don't care what rubber boots and ozonics based, and I don't care what you're wearing, uh, if your foot touches the ground and a deer walks through there, in my opinion, in, in my feeling, is if a deer smells that footprint, that area right there where that footprint is, is now ruined. Um, that's my thought process. I've seen it on game cameras. I've seen it in person. I've seen it so many times that, like I said, they cross that deer trail in pressured areas. And I'm imagining that your black tails are, are pressured. Maybe not. I don't know. But, I mean, they're pretty, they're finicky. Maybe not pressured by people, but they're a very elusive, finicky animal. And I, I, I my opinion, if they cross your scent, the spot is ruined. So make sure the only time they cross your scent is when you're sitting in that tree above them. Good yeah, stuff, man. Great stuff. Yeah, that, yeah that's, that's definitely sound advice. Why don't you tell us uh, where we can find you again? I know I've plugged you several times, but uh, tell everyone uh, uh, where they can find all your stuff. Uh, yeah, it's on the website. It's tbwpodcast.com. Stands for Traditional Bow Hunting Wilderness Podcast. Tbwpodcast or yeah, tbwpodcast.com. And uh, so pretty much everything is on there. I also put a lot of stuff on YouTube. It's tbwpodcast uh, on YouTube. So same thing either place. Um, but uh, the the podcast site is where you'll find pretty much all of it together. But the downside to the videos on the podcast site is that you got to go page by page. So it's not like you can scroll through them real easy, where if you're looking for the videos, I think there's over a hundred of them on uh, the, on the YouTube channel. And those are quick and easy to scroll through. Uh, the podcasts are all right there. They're on iTunes and stuff too. I think they only go to like 30 episodes there. So if you're looking for a lot of, you know, the past stuff, more than 30 episodes old, go to the website, tbwpodcast.com. And you're, uh, you're up in like the two forties now, 240 episodes or so. Actually, yeah, 10 minutes before we recorded this, I just finished episode 242, which will be uh, very similar to this. It's actually uh, understanding the difference between uh, night sign and daytime sign in the deer woods. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, as Jason said on his YouTube channel, he's got some really great videos on his tree stand setups, how to make these uh, lineman ropes, um, all the stuff we're talking about. He's really took the time to put this on video to educate guys and help them put their tag on deer. So, you know, we, we appreciate everything you're doing for the bow hunting community, for the traditional bow hunting community, the whitetail community. Uh, we thank you. I appreciate it. And the same goes right back to you. Like I said, your podcast, uh, this is incredible and it's, it's for the right reasons and it's got the right kind of information. And I, I just, uh, you know, even my listeners, I, I get compliments from them on your stuff all the time. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's a great thing you're doing. I hope it continues and you guys have many years of success, success with this. And, uh, every episode, like I said, even though I'm not even a Western hunter, I just can't get enough of it. You, you guys do this the right way and I'm excited for the next one. Everyone that comes out, I can't wait for it. <laughs> awesome, man. That's a surprise, but that's awesome. Thanks, bud. Yeah, yeah, thank you very much. And uh, we definitely will get Jason back on in the future. And uh, thank you very much uh, uh, for coming on. Uh, you're welcome. Anytime. Looking forward to it. And good luck this season. You guys, too. Well, yours is uh, congratulations, you guys. Um, I, but I know Blacktail's not quite here yet, but good luck to you guys as well. Thanks again for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, TuneIn, Blueberry, 
Check us out on TradQuest.com, Facebook, uh, 